Once again, to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at Raw Attitude Pod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. I can't stress it enough, people. Five-star reviews are hugely beneficial for the show, so if you think we're worth it, drop a quick review on iTunes and you will be my new best friend. Okay, so right off the bat, I want to give a quick plug to the Rundown Wrestling Podcast. The host of that show, Adam, has co-hosted the Raw Attitude Podcast with me on three separate occasions, and he's actually launched a new show called Nitromania, where he will be recapping every episode of WCW Monday Nitro, a show which he has never watched. And in fact, yours truly will actually be appearing on that very podcast in a few weeks when he gets around to discussing Halloween Havoc 1995, a.k.a. the show that features the Yeti and the Monster Truck Battle, so be on the lookout for that soon. Nitromania does not yet have its own feed, but if you subscribe to the Rundown Wrestling Podcast, you'll be able to get access to the Nitromania episodes, so be sure to do that as soon as possible. And speaking of WCW, I'll be diving into one particular moment from the episode of Nitro, which opposed the Raw I'm going to cover, so definitely stay tuned for that at the end of this podcast, because it's good stuff. I don't usually go too in-depth on Nitro, but one of the moments on the show definitely warrants it this time around. Also, one more fun piece of news. I will be getting married in mid-August, and yes, this is actually a shoot, folks. In fact, the proposal went down the exact same romantic way that Macho Man Randy Savage proposed to Elizabeth. I didn't pronounce the last letter of her name, I aggressively asked her to marry me, and then Vince McMahon cackled. Elizabeth! Will you marry me? (laughs) Unfortunately, my fiancé's name isn't Elizabeth, though. That... Would have made the proposal even better if that was the case. She will, of course, be taking my last name, so that means she will become Henrietta Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. But the main takeaway here is that this episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast may be the only one that I put up for the month of August, because I'll be quite busy with other matters. In the meantime, I would suggest going back and binge-listening to the other episodes in the event that you haven't already. Or hell, even if you have, go back and listen again anyway. I put a lot of time into this podcast, people. Alright, so, with that being said, let's get into Monday Night Raw. However, before I can do that, the WWE Network informs me that this episode of Raw is rated TVMA for language, sexual content, and violence. In addition to telling me that, there's also a warning that pops up on the screen which says, quote, The following program is presented in its original form. It may contain some content or insensitive dialogue that does not reflect WWE's corporate views. WWE characters are fictitious and do not reflect the personal lives of the actors portraying them. Viewer discretion advised. You see, they're all actors, people. The Undertaker isn't really an undead zombie. He's a thespian immersed in his craft. Never forget that it's theater inside of a four-sided ring, you Philistines. Anyway, that message is then followed by another warning, just in case you didn't get the idea the first time. The second one says, quote, The following program is rated TVMA. What you are about to watch contains explicit language, adult themes, violence, and may not be suitable for viewers under 18. Viewer discretion is strongly advised. So, for those of you scoring at home, this is the second TVMA episode on our timeline. The first one was the July 20th episode of Raw, covered in episode 31 of this podcast, where Triple H got a fan in the crowd to show her breasts, and, well, let's just say that may be a factor for this episode being rated TVMA as well. Stay tuned. So, anyway, it is Monday, September 14th, 1998, and we are live from the San Jose Arena in San Jose, California. 
You may remember one of the other noteworthy events which took place in this same venue, the 1998 Royal Rumble, where Stone Cold Steve Austin won the Rumble match itself, and Shawn Michaels suffered a severe back injury and a casket match against The Undertaker, which ultimately ends up putting his wrestling career on hold for four years. For a change of pace, we do not queue up the opening credits, the pyro, or the obligatory scanning of the crowd, and instead we just dive right into the action. But, of course, I'll mention some of the noteworthy signs in the crowd anyway. Some of the best ones include... I heart porn. Sable is a plastic doll tramp. We're white. Val got Yamaguchi coochie. And, for some reason, Kane and Taker sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. And I'm assuming the fan who held up that sign must be about four years old. And so Raw begins with WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin walking to the ring. And let me just say, this episode is already a breath of fresh air, because unlike the past two Saturday episodes of Raw, Stone Cold is actually on the show. His absence was certainly quite noticeable over the past few weeks, because those Saturday Night Raw episodes were shit. So interestingly, as Austin is walking down the aisle, we see that Vince McMahon, The Undertaker, and Kane are already in the ring. Now, does it count as a jobber entrance if you enter before the show even goes on the air? I think I need a ruling on that. Also, it may come as a bit of a surprise to see Vince, Taker, and Kane all standing together, because it was just two short weeks ago when Vince caused the Brothers of Destruction to go on a maniacal rampage after he called them, quote, two putrid pussies. Apparently, they're willing to forgive that for some reason. So Austin starts to do his usual routine of posing on all four turnbuckles, but as he's doing it, Vince grabs a mic and angrily yells for the production team to cut off Stone Cold's music. He reminds us that he has booked a triple threat WWF Championship match for the breakdown pay-per-view in two weeks, Stone Cold Steve Austin versus The Undertaker versus Kane. Vince then claims that he has struck a deal with the Brothers of Destruction, and they will annihilate Austin if he attempts to so much as touch Vince at any point before the pay-per-view. Unlike Stone Cold, Taker and Kane are willing to do business, so they will be rewarded for it. The chairman then goes out on a limb and guarantees that Austin will lose the WWF title at breakdown. Why does he feel so confident about that? Well, let's listen to him tell it. Now why is it that Vince McMahon can guarantee to the public that the WWF title is going to change hands? Well, a number of reasons, but principal among them is this new stipulation in this triple threat match. A stipulation that was added just a moment ago. And that is, Undertaker, you are prohibited from defeating your brother Kane in this match. What? And Kane, you are absolutely prohibited from defeating your brother, the Undertaker, in this match. You see, this is not a normal triple threat match. No. Now let me see. If my addition is correct, I would say, in all likelihood, hey, this could be, this could be two against one. Duh. As if that stipulation wasn't bad enough, Vince then takes it even further and attempts to insult Stone Cold even more by getting right in his face, jabbing his finger into Austin's chest, and bringing back one of his most infamous catchphrases. You won't do business. You refuse to do business. You won't do things the easy way, like Undertaker and Kane. No, 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 no. You've got to do things the hard way. You've got to do things your way. So have it your way, all right? And on Sunday night, September 27, Austin, when you're flat on your back, looking up at these ring lights, and there's been an announcement that you are no longer the WWF champion, I want you to remember one thing. And that is Vince McMahon didn't screw Stone Cold Steve Austin. Oh, no. Not at all. 
Stone Cold screwed Stone Cold. So as you could hear, Austin attacked Vince, but true to their word, The Undertaker and Kane did indeed attack Stone Cold for laying a hand on the chairman. The Brothers of Destruction then proceeded to pick up the WWF champion and hit him with a double choke slam, and, amusingly, once Austin was flat on the canvas, Vince mocked some of Stone Cold's signature mannerisms by yelling in his face and flipping him the double bird. Kane then raised his arms to signal for his pyro, but, whoops, it didn't actually go off, and his music just played instead. He then lifted his arms to try again, and this time it actually worked, so I guess someone must have awakened the pyro guy. Vince then motions for The Undertaker and Kane to follow him up the aisle, and so they do. Once Taker gets to the top of the ramp, he grabs a microphone and says, quote, Austin, nothing personal. It's just business. And obviously that doesn't comfort Stone Cold at all, because he can clearly be seen mouthing the words, fuck you, after The Undertaker says that. Taker then proceeds to hand the microphone to Vince, who makes the blockbuster announcement that Stone Cold may actually lose the title before Breakdown because, later tonight on Raw, Austin will have to defend his WWF Championship against Ken Shamrock. Holy shit. That's a pretty badass matchup, I have to say. Definitely looking forward to that one. Although, from The Undertaker and Kane's perspective, doesn't that kind of suck for them? I mean, if Shamrock wins the title, then the triple threat match at Breakdown would presumably be off, right? Or maybe Shamrock would just defend the title in Austin's place? Who knows? Either way, this was a really captivating opening segment, and Stone Cold vs. Shamrock should be awesome, so we're off to a great start here. And honestly, this segment alone was better than anything that aired on either of the Saturday Night Raw episodes, so I already have very high hopes for this broadcast. After a commercial break, it's time for our first match of the evening, Jeff Jarrett versus the road dog Jesse James. And if you're like me, you popped huge, because this means we're getting Double J going up against his former roadie, presumably with the stipulation being that the winner gets to retain the rights to With My Baby Tonight. Great song. And by the way, no sooner did I type that than they actually showed footage of Jesse James acting as Jarrett's roadie back in the day, and quite frankly, I can't believe that they actually acknowledged that. I thought for sure they would gloss over it, so kudos to the WWF for not shying away from its goofy, new-generation history, I suppose. So Jarrett is accompanied to the ring by Southern Justice, while Road Dog is accompanied by X-Pac and badass Billy Gunn, who is wearing braids in his hair for some reason. Jerry Lawler says that Billy's hair is reminiscent of Venus Williams' hairstyle, so he must have been watching the U.S. Open over the past weekend, to which Jim Ross replies, quote, Not many folks were, but I guess he was. That's right, once again, they're taking pot shots at the programming which preempted them over the past few weeks. Although in fairness, JR's point is not that far off. The 1998 US Open averaged a 2.2 rating, and Raw was routinely putting up twice that number before tennis preempted it, so perhaps the USA Network backed the wrong horse there. Also, as a quick side note, Venus Williams actually just finished as the runner-up at Wimbledon a few weeks ago, so unlike the WWE, she's still going quite strong 19 years later. Anyway, back to the Jeff Jarrett Road Dog match. So the two former pals actually go on to have a pretty solid little match, but then we got the finish. Road Dog taunted Jarrett by imitating his trademark strut, and then Dennis Knight jumped up on the ring apron, so Road Dog punched him off. Mark Canterbury then grabbed Road Dog by the foot and pulled him out of the ring, and Southern Justice started beating the crap out of him. And, might I add, this is all going on in full view of referee Tim White, who, for some reason, does not call for a disqualification. Billy Gunn and X-Pac then run over to help out, and Billy clocks Dennis Knight in the head with Jarrett's guitar, leaving it in pieces. With Tim White distracted, Jarrett then proceeds to take the shattered guitar, and, once Road Dog re-enters the ring, he hits him in the throat with the top part of the guitar, then does it once again for good measure. White returns to the ring and makes the count, and that was good enough to give Double J the victory. So, to recap, Tim White didn't disqualify Jarrett when Southern Justice pulled Road Dog out of the ring and beat the crap out of him while he was watching, but Jarrett felt the need to secretly hit Road Dog with a piece of the guitar behind White's back, even though he presumably would not have disqualified him for it anyway. Suddenly, I feel like I need a nap. 
After a quick commercial break, we see Road Dog backstage being helped into an ambulance by Billy Gunn as Jarrett's guitar shot to his throat apparently did quite a bit of damage to him. Commissioner Slaughter comes over to check on Road Dog, but Billy angrily yells at him to stay away. Billy was really trying to amp up his acting and be super intense here, but as I mentioned earlier, he still has Venus Williams-style braids in his hair, so that makes it a bit difficult to take him seriously. When we go back to the arena, it's time for our next match, and boy is it a doozy, The Rock versus Kane, who is accompanied by The Undertaker. Before the match began, Michael Cole attempted to interview The Rock backstage, but it appeared that there was a bit of dissension between him and his Nation of Domination colleagues D'Lo Brown, Mark Henry, and Owen Hart. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Cole is standing by, I believe, with The Rock. We're standing by with The Rock and the rest of the nation. There is some sort of... It's all about knowing your role. D-Lo, The Rock wants you to go out by the far corner, not the near corner, the far corner, and stay there. Mark Henry, you take your big ass up the ramp. Don't go stumbling through the curtain, but you stay but there. Rock, 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 why do I got to stand by that corner? Why can't Owen stand there and Mark stand over no, there? You don't worry about you. Yeah. Tell me what to do. That's The Rock's problem, not our oh, problem. That's the Rock's problem. Well, how about this? Help try this on for size. The Rock is going to go out there and kick Kane's ass all by his lonesome, and he wants you two, three candy asses to know your role and be ready. What are you calling it? So there you have it, The Rock is planning on facing Kane all by his lonesome without any backup. And in case you're wondering, yes, this is indeed the very first one-on-one matchup between The Rock and Kane, two guys whose paths will occasionally cross throughout the Attitude Era. Quite a bit of history being made here tonight in this match. And for the record, the fans were firmly behind The Rock during this match, as you could hear quite a few Rocky chants throughout. Kane dominated much of the match, but every time The Rock knocked him to the canvas, the crowd gave him a big pop. Definitely a good sign for The Rock's face turn. At one point, Kane attempted to lift Rock into position for the tombstone, but Rock's feet accidentally kicked the referee, knocking him unconscious. From there, Rock was able to squirm out of the tombstone position, knock Kane down, and hit him with the people's elbow, which, of course, also got a massive pop. However, once Rock hit it, The Undertaker entered the ring and started attacking him to a loud chorus of boos. Taker threw Rock outside the ring and started beating on him, but while that was going on, a sledgehammer-wielding Mankind snuck into the ring behind Kane. Remember that we haven't seen Mankind since SummerSlam when Kane attempted to murder him with possibly that very same sledgehammer. So Mankind then proceeded to get some payback by swinging the sledgehammer and hitting Kane right in his back, knocking the big red machine to the ground. I'm sure that was a gimmicked sledgehammer, but it was still a very brutal-looking spot. Perhaps that also contributed to the TVMA rating? Who knows? The Undertaker then chased Mankind up the ramp, so Rock rolled back into the ring, covered Kane, and, once the referee finally recovered, he counted the one, the two, and the three. That's right, folks, The Rock just pinned Kane, something that I believe only The Undertaker and Stone Cold have done in the WWF up to this point. Although, granted, it did look like Kane's left hand was under the bottom rope during that pinfall, but still, an impressive win nonetheless. After the match, The Undertaker grabbed a microphone and told Mankind that this has gone on long enough, and it all has to end tonight. He then challenged Foley to a match later on Raw, and he requested for him to bring the sledgehammer with him. Meanwhile, I continue to marvel over the fact that seemingly half the roster has been wielding sledgehammers over the past few weeks, but Triple H hasn't been one of them. Go figure. After a commercial break, we headed backstage, where Michael Cole was standing by with Mankind, who happily accepts The Undertaker's challenge for later tonight. For the record, Mankind claims that Kane was not successful at killing him at SummerSlam because Foley was able to get his hand up and slightly deflect the sledgehammer blow. Unfortunately, in addition to having a swollen face, he now also appears to have an injured hand as well from the hammer making partial contact. As strange as it is to say, I actually kind of admire their commitment to explaining this angle. Logically, if someone did smash a sledgehammer into someone else's skull, it probably would kill them, but they're actually concocting this story where Kane only made partial contact thanks to Foley getting his hand up. They didn't need to explain it since we, as wrestling fans, willingly suspend our disbelief during every show, but they explained it anyway, so tip of the cap there for the storytelling. When we go back to the arena, Dustin Runnels is in the ring with a microphone, and the first words he says are, quote, Well, folks, welcome to hell. To which I say, no, that would be watching Saturday Night Raw over the past few weeks. 
Dustin then starts to discuss the current state of the WWF, and in my mind, he perfectly sums up the Attitude Era in one sentence. Take a look around here. World Wrestling Federation. Man, oh man, I'm telling you what. Stained with vulgar language. Stained with aggression. And yes, stained with sex. Stained with vulgar language, stained with aggression, and stained with sex. Funny enough, those are actually the exact three reasons why this episode of Raw is rated TVMA on the WWE Network. Clearly, Dustin was a very wise man. So he then warns us that he is coming back, and Val Venus will need to repent when he does. And sure enough, that brings Val out from backstage. He stands at the top of the ramp and says he would like to introduce us all to his newest movie, which is entitled The Preacher's Wife. In the video, we see Val lying in bed, and he references the fact that Dustin had jumped him from behind last night on Sunday Night Heat, so when he returned to his hotel room, he made a special phone call. And then, sure enough, Dustin's real-life wife, Terry Runnels, formerly known as Marlena, pops her head up from below the covers. For those scoring at home, this is the first we've seen of Terry in almost a year, as she had been in the middle of the Goldust-Brian Pillman rivalry until Pillman's real-life death back in October of 97. Back in the arena, a distraught Dustin drops to his knees and tearfully begins to pray, to which Val says, quote, I guess getting on your knees runs in the family. Ouch. And once again, I'm left to marvel over the fact that the sleazy guy who steals another man's wife and mocks him for it is the good guy in this scenario. That's the Attitude Era for you folks, stained with sex. When we come back from commercial, we get a very special vignette, and holy shit, I'm just going to play this clip for you, because it's ushering in the debut of a new gimmick for a legendary wrestler. The great outdoors, full of beauty and natural wonder. Fresh air, blue skies, tall trees... A lesser human might be humbled by its grandeur. But not this man. There's not a tree in the forest he can't cut down to size. Meet Stephen Regal, a man's man. Now, let me paint the picture for what you just heard there. Regal is in the forest holding an axe and wearing a flannel shirt because, clearly, he's a lumberjack and that's okay. He starts chopping a tree, and then we fast-forward ahead to, presumably, a few hours later, where he's now standing on top of a large pile of firewood. He then looks directly into the camera with a pleased look on his face, and nods. And I have to say, even though this is incredibly fucking stupid, it's also really funny. I think Regal clearly knows he's being given shit to work with here, but he's Regal, so he turns chicken shit into chicken salad because he's just that good. Definitely go check out this vignette because, in my opinion, it's pretty hilarious, and also I find it amusing that his WWF gimmick is pretty much the polar opposite of the blue blood snob gimmick he portrayed in WCW for three years. And on a related note, it's time for our next match, former blue blood snob Triple H accompanied by China and X-Pac versus Owen Hart accompanied by Mark Henry in a match for Hunter's Intercontinental title. And at the very beginning, out of nowhere, I suddenly realized why this episode was rated TVMA. It's a very brief moment, and it would be easy to miss if you weren't paying attention, but here goes. While Hunter China and X-Pac are in the ring waiting on Owen's arrival, Triple H spies a female fan in the front row who's wearing a white tank top. Hunter has his back to the camera, but you can see him doing the show-your-boobs motion from behind. And sure enough, the fan actually does show her breasts. Yes, that's right, folks uncensored breasts on the WWE Network. Now, to be clear, it's very brief and you can barely see them, but it does happen. Now, obviously, Triple H has requested for women to show their breasts several times over the past few months, but it's always been planted fans who take him up on it because the cameras zoom right in on them and the WWF censors the nudity when it actually airs. This was different because it was basically going on in the background while DX was doing their entrance, so I'm 99% sure that it was unplanned and Hunter was going rogue there. Either way, there are uncensored boobs on the WW Network, and I can only assume that viewership of this episode of Raw is now going to skyrocket once I put this podcast up, so you're welcome, WWE. 
Okay, so with all that being said, let's get into this match because Triple H and Owen Hart have obviously had quite the intense rivalry over the past nine months, so there's a lot of history between the two going into this match. Also, as if there was any question as to whether or not Owen is still over, the crowd gives him a huge nugget chant right off the bat. Gotta love it. Hunter and Owen only get about five and a half minutes of ring time, but it was good stuff, as you might expect. The finish of the match came when Owen was about to put Triple H into the sharpshooter, but China jumped up on the ring apron to distract him. Mark Henry then yanked China off the apron and got in her face, so X-Pac jumped on Henry's back and started pummeling him. The world's strongest man then easily yanked X-Pac off his shoulders and threw him to the ground, but China then hit him with a forearm to the face, and also you could clearly see Henry call the spot to China in advance, which kind of killed the moment a little bit. Back in the ring, Owen then turned back around, but Triple H caught him with a boot to the stomach, followed by a pedigree, and that was enough to give Hunter the victory and his first successful retention of his newly won Intercontinental title. Shortly after the match ends, Mark Henry and Owen are walking up the ramp, so Michael Cole tries to get a word with them. Instead, however, Henry takes the mic away from Cole and makes a challenge for later tonight. He wants a handicap match pitting himself against X-Pac and China. Remember that China has only officially competed in one match so far during her WWF tenure, so they're really stacking Raw with some important moments tonight in order to try and combat the huge angle that WCW had planned on this night. More on that later. We then cut backstage where we see Mankind pushing a dumpster and throwing various objects inside of it, presumably in preparation for his match with The Undertaker. And sure enough, when we come back from commercial, that match is indeed next. Mankind versus The Undertaker, who is accompanied by Kane. I will note that Kane is still selling the effects of that sledgehammer shot from earlier, which is a bit of a departure for his character because he usually gets hit with a move, then does his zombie sit-up routine and shakes it off. Although, granted, when you get clubbed in the back with a sledgehammer, you should probably sell that shit. And speaking of sledgehammers, both The Undertaker and Mankind bring their own sledgehammers to the ring, and Foley also brings a ladder, as well as his dumpster full of goodies. Also, one more tidbit before we get started. This is the Monday Night Raw debut of The Undertaker's new badass theme song. He had been using an early, not-quite-as-good version of the theme since Fully Loaded, but it has now been altered to be more guitar-heavy, and as a result, much more awesome. And in case you need a frame of reference, I'm going to play a clip of that theme song at the tail end of this podcast, so be sure to stay tuned for that. So anyway, the match begins with Mankind raising his sledgehammer to hit Taker, but referee Tim White snatches it out of Foley's hands before he can do any damage. The Undertaker then raises his sledgehammer, but Foley puts the mandible claw on him, causing Taker to drop the weapon. Both men then roll out to the floor and start brawling around the ring. At one point, we get a brutal-looking spot where The Undertaker places Mankind's injured hand on the bottom part of the ring steps, and then he drops the top part of the steps right on Foley's hand. For Mick's sake, I hope that wasn't as painful as it looked. The Undertaker controlled the majority of the match, including throwing Mankind face-first into a standing table, removing Foley's mask, and shoving the back of his head into the side of the dumpster. In fact, the only time Mankind was really able to muster any offense was when he hit Taker in the back with a chair, but then, shortly thereafter, he did his patented spot where he held the chair up in front of his own face and charged at his opponent, which of course resulted in Taker kicking the chair right back into Foley's face. From there, The Undertaker hit Foley with a choke slam, then followed it up with a tombstone on top of the chair. Instead of pinning Mankind, however... The Undertaker picked up his sledgehammer. He raised it over his head with the intention of presumably killing Foley. But thankfully, The Rock emerged from the dumpster, ran into the ring, and chop-blocked Taker's knee, causing him to drop the sledgehammer. The Rock then pulled Mankind out of the ring and tossed him into the crowd, which Jim Ross played up as though he was getting Foley out of harm's way. Rock started walking backstage, which caused the Brothers of Destruction to follow him, so I assume we now have another Vince Russo special the no-contest ending where nothing is resolved. Gotta love those, huh? So earlier on this show, The Undertaker had said that his rivalry with Mankind would end tonight. Well, he ends up being sort of correct about that because he and Foley will only have two more one-on-one -on -one matches throughout the rest of their careers, and both of them are just one-off matches without being part of a bigger storyline. And so for that reason, I think we can say that this does indeed put an end to the epic Undertaker-Mankind feud. Jim Ross likes to point out that Mankind has more victories over Taker than anyone else, but, by my count, at this point he actually only has 
two televised victories over the dead man, one at King of the Ring 96 and one at SummerSlam 96. Not exactly a run of dominance. Either way, both men get a tip of the cap from me for giving us some classic moments over the years, specifically Mick Foley almost being killed when Taker tosses him off of Hell in a Cell. Good times. So after a commercial break, it's time for our next match, Edge versus Gangrel, and frankly, I'm a little surprised they're giving this one away on free TV since they've been hyping up this rivalry for weeks. Specifically, the commentators are still playing up the speculation that Edge and Gangrel may have actually known each other before they came to the WWF, so perhaps there's a bit more than meets the eye here. They only get about three and a half minutes, but it was a pretty good match for the time they were given. The finish came when Edge attempted his over-the-top rope crossbody splash onto Gangrel, but he sidestepped him and actually spiked Edge into the ground. It actually looked really bad, as though Edge may have legitimately landed face-first on the floor, a la The Undertaker at WrestleMania 25. And from there, Gangrel picked up Edge and hit him with an impaler DDT on the floor for good measure. But, unfortunately for both men, the referee had been counting the entire time, so we get a double countout. After the bell rings, Gangrel grabs his goblet full of blood, pours some into his own mouth, spits on his own hand for some reason, and then ruins his mystique by talking. Ripley's count of both men out, but that's not the big story here. What are you, oh my God, what is this man doing? Before Gangrel blows through your veins, eternity is forever, In case you were wondering why Gangrel never gets promo time, now you know it's because his voice does not exactly match up with his character. So anyway, according to Gangrel, his blood flows through Edge's veins, so, uh, I guess maybe they're brothers? Or distant cousins? Or perhaps Gangrel is his great-great-great-grandfather since vampires are immortal? I guess we'll find out at some point in the coming weeks, and I'm sure the explanation will make a ton of sense. After another commercial, it's time for the handicap match, which was set up earlier, Mark Henry versus X-Pac and China, who are accompanied by Triple H. And speaking of Triple H, he takes a page out of Headbanger Thrasher's book from last week by imitating the way a monkey walks as Mark Henry is coming to the ring. Ladies and gentlemen, your present-day WWE Executive Vice President of Talent, likening a black man to a monkey. And goddamn, I would certainly hate for you all to tweet Hunter screenshots of that moment to remind him of it. Definitely don't do that. No, sir. No, sir. So at the beginning of the match, China tells X-Pac she wants to start the match in the ring with Henry, and that actually draws a nice-sized pop from the crowd. However, referee Jack Doan instead forces her to stand on the ring apron, and he makes X-Pac start the match instead. Now that's a new one. A referee is allowing someone to compete, but he's forcing someone else to start the match. Makes absolutely zero sense, but that's Vince Russo booking for you. And right off the bat, X-Pac pays for Jack Doan's decision because Pac locks up with Henry, and then the world's strongest man just picks him up and viciously flings him over the top rope. Basically, picture Mark Henry tossing him, then X-Pac lands back first on the top rope in midair, and then he falls to the arena floor. Definitely a very unsafe-looking spot. And once that happens, WWF European champion D'Lo Brown emerges from backstage, and he heads to the ring to provide some backup for Henry. From there, X-Pac re-enters the ring, and then we get more people joining the fray, as Jeff Jarrett and Southern Justice then walk to ringside as well. Back in the ring, X-Pac unsuccessfully tries to suplex Henry, so China enters the ring to help out, and when they hit the double suplex on him, the crowd explodes. They fucking love seeing China mix it up with the guys, and rightfully so. Shortly thereafter, X-Pac officially tags China into the match, and she hits Henry with a crappy-looking spear, followed by a forearm. Again, the crowd absolutely loves it, but China quickly tags Pac back in. After hitting Henry with a spin kick, followed by a Bronco Buster, thankfully, without tearing his asshole, Pac tags China right back in, but when she goes to enter the ring, D'Lo Brown grabs her foot. X-Pac hits D'Lo with a baseball slide to incapacitate him, and that allows China to go to the second rope. She goes for a flying crossbody, but Henry catches her in midair and hits her with a power slam, drawing a huge oh from the crowd. He then went for the pin, and that was good enough for the one, the two, and the three. After the match, China actually recovers a little too quickly from the power slam, so Jim Ross has to cover for her by saying that she's in more pain than she's letting on. Also, in case you were wondering, yes, Jeff Jarrett and Southern Justice did come to ringside, and no, they did absolutely nothing. All right, then. 
but I will give them some credit for attempting to elevate Mark Henry a little bit here. China was certainly willing to get in the ring and mix it up with the guys, but Henry power slamming her definitely makes him come across as a total dick. So kudos to them for trying to elevate him past his current role as that strong guy in the nation. And after a commercial break, up next we have an evening gown match, Sable versus Jacqueline, who is accompanied by Mark Merrow. For some reason, before this match starts, they show footage of the tuxedo match between Howard Finkel and Harvey Whippleman from January 1995, and no one needs to see that. For those scoring at home, this is only the second ever evening gown match, with the first one having taken place at the Unforgiven pay-per-view five months prior. In case you need a refresher, you win the match by tearing off your opponent's evening gown and... Well, that's it, actually. So interestingly enough, this basically ends up being a quick, glorified squash for Sable as she takes Jacqueline down to the mat several times. And yes, in case you were wondering, Jacqueline does indeed come out of her top roughly 1,000 times during this minute-long match, so much so that the WWF actually cuts to a wider camera shot to avoid showing her breasts even more than they already have. However, don't get your hopes up too much, because unlike earlier in the evening, the WWE Network does indeed pixelate Jackie's breasts every time they fall out of her gown, unlike when this episode initially aired live back in 1998. Sorry, folks. Eventually, Sable hits Jacqueline with her patented Sable bomb, then she just tears off the rest of Jackie's gown, and that's enough to give Sable the victory. I'm sure the fans were happy that she won, but her evening gown was pretty much entirely intact at the end, so I imagine they likely wanted a different result. And fortunately for them, Sable does indeed oblige by stripping off her gown after the match, showing us all her lingerie anyway. What a trooper. And while she's doing it, you can even hear one creepy guy in the crowd intensely yelling, Yeah! Yeah! Give it to me! Oh sure, you laugh now, but we were all that guy in 1998. There was one interesting moment which happened after the match, though. Once Sable won, the camera zoomed in on a woman who was seated in the front row, but neither Jim Ross nor Jerry Lawler said anything about her whatsoever. Of course, if you're a fan of the Attitude Era, you will certainly recognize that this woman was Tori. Not Tori Wilson of WCW fame, but rather just Tori, T-O-R-I. What will her role be in the coming weeks? Well, I guess we'll find out together because I honestly don't remember myself. Stay tuned. And now it's time for your main event of the evening. It is our WWF Championship match, champion Stone Cold Steve Austin putting his belt on the line against the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock. Jim Ross informs us that this is only Shamrock's second ever shot at the title, and my research tells me that his first one was at last December's In Your House Degeneration X pay-per-view, where he beat WWF champion Shawn Michaels by disqualification. Interestingly, Austin actually jumps Shamrock before the bell, which normally would be considered a heelish move, but it's Austin, so of course the fans are fine with it. Only a few seconds into the match, Shamrock takes Austin down with an armbar, then transitions into the ankle lock, and Austin has to scramble for the ropes and roll out of the ring. It's not often that we actually see Stone Cold look vulnerable like that, so it's nice to see him giving Shamrock a bit of a rub there. However, Austin then goes on to pretty much control the entirety of the match, with Shamrock never really going on the offensive for any prolonged stretch of time. It wasn't a squash match because Shamrock would mount some offense from time to time, but Stone Cold was definitely in control throughout. And to the WWF's credit, they actually let both men go out there and wrestle for 12 minutes, which is an absolute eternity by current Raw standards. Toward the end of the match, they hit a double clothesline, and both men went down to the mat. And from there, you could probably guess what happens next. We got another Vince Russo special as the match ended in a no contest when The Undertaker and Kane came out from backstage and beat the crap out of both men. The Brothers of Destruction cleared Austin and Shamrock out of the ring, but then The Rock and Mankind ran out from backstage and started beating the crap out of Taker and Kane. Wait, The Rock and Mankind teaming up? Hmm. Nah, that'd never work. Eventually, Stone Cold re-entered the ring and smacked The Undertaker and Kane in the head with chair shots, and then he spied Vince McMahon standing at the top of the ramp. Austin took his chair and started walking toward the owner, and that was how we went off the air. What a fucking awesome episode of Raw. I don't know how to put it any more succinctly than that. This was a great show. However, there's still a lot more to cover, including that massive angle over on Nitro, so let's take it to the wrap-up. 
Yo, I slayed MCs back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap Well, actually, before getting into the ratings, I must note that WCW put on their Fall Brawl pay-per-view the night before, and a few noteworthy things happened. Number one, according to many reports, this is the night where the British Bulldog landed awkwardly on the Warriors' secret trap door, causing him to badly injure his back. A lot of people have said over the years that this injury occurs at Fall Brawl, but Bulldog is still wrestling another month after this before he gets hospitalized, so I'm guessing it might have actually happened on another night, but there you go. Number two, this is also the night where WCW began its legendarily tasteless Last Call Scott Hall angle as Hall is holding a drink when he walks to the ring and visibly acting intoxicated. In fact, he ends up losing his match against Conan because he turns his back on him and asks Vincent to hand him his beverage. It's truly remarkable to me that the WWF has been doing their drunk hawk angle for almost two months now, and it's completely awful, but apparently someone at WCW watched it and said, Hey now, we have an even bigger alcoholic on our roster, and I bet we could get some mileage out of making him act out his demons. Sometimes the wrestling business is pretty fucked up, folks. And number three, perhaps the most noteworthy aspect of Fall Brawl was that the Warrior made his in-ring WCW debut in the annual War Games match. Warrior was part of Team WCW, which also consisted of Diamond Dallas Page and Roddy Piper, and their opponents were Team Wolfpack, which consisted of Kevin Nash, Sting, and Lex Luger, and Team Hollywood, which consisted of Hulk Hogan, Bret Hart, and Stevie Ray. I shit you not... Stevie Ray was apparently one of the best wrestlers the NWO black and white could muster for war games. That about says it all right there. The stipulation of the match was that whoever scored the winning pinfall would earn a world title shot against Goldberg at next month's Halloween Havoc pay-per-view, and the match ended when DDP pinned the aforementioned Stevie Ray, so Goldberg versus DDP will headline next month. I won't get into all the craziness which occurred when the Warrior finally entered the ring about 17 minutes into the match, but let's just say that it involved his magic smoke making a doppelganger of himself disappear, and he was only in the match for a few minutes before he chased Hogan back to the locker room. Well worth the $30 this show cost, I'm sure. And speaking of which, Fall Brawl actually did about 275,000 pay-per-view buys, which is up from 195,000 the previous year, so it seems that Warrior did indeed prove to be somewhat of a draw for this show. I'm going to assume that Warrior was the reason for the buys, because there was nothing else on the show that presumably would have generated much interest, unless you really wanted to see Ernest the Cat Miller versus Norman Smiley. So on that note, let's take it to the ratings. On this night, that amazing episode of Raw drew a 3.99 rating, but Nitro easily beat it with a 4.54. It seems hard to believe the WCW would win by such a huge margin when the WWF had such a ridiculously stacked show, but, well, let's just say that Nitro won pretty much thanks to one man alone, and I'm going to cover that in depth in just a bit. But from a lineup perspective, here's what you could have been watching as the alternative to Raw. Alex Wright and Hammer fought to a no-contest... Saturn defeated Kendall Windham, Wrath defeated the Renegade, and side note, I wonder if the Warrior ever bothered to speak with the Renegade backstage at any of these shows. That would have been an interesting conversation, I'm sure. Kidman defeated Juventud Guerrera to win the WCW Cruiserweight Championship, and great match, by the way. Scott Steiner defeated Norman Smiley and Silver King in a handicap match. The Giant defeated Ming. Lex Luger and Scott Hall went to a no contest, more on that in just a moment. And in your main event, Goldberg defeated Sting to retain his World Heavyweight Championship thanks to interference from Hulk Hogan. So as you can see, to WCW's credit, they actually put on a very solid show on this night to go up against Raw's ridiculously good episode. I mean, when you're giving away undefeated World Champion Goldberg versus Sting on free TV, you're clearly pulling out all the stops. Not to mention that one amazing segment which I will be touching on in just a moment. With that being said, they also did two ridiculously bad angles on this night, so let's start with those. The first was another instance of Warrior's magic smoke filling the squared circle, and when the smoke disappeared, he was standing in the ring along with an unconscious disciple. 
The NWO eventually comes down to ringside, and Warrior tells Hogan he will face him at Halloween Havoc, but I can't help but be distracted by the fact that Warrior is standing over the Disciple and holding him by the back of his shirt, so it almost looks like he's participating in an Ed Leslie rodeo. Very bizarre. And then, to finish the segment, the smoke fills the ring once more, causing Warrior and the Disciple to disappear. Clearly, all that money they've invested in the Warrior has been well spent. The second terrible angle of the night was the continuation of the Last Call Scott Hall storyline. This time around, Hall is drunk during his match with Lex Luger, so Eric Bischoff comes down to the ring, followed by Conan and Hall's real-life best pal, Kevin Nash. Because, you see, this is a shoot, folks. And they drive home the aspect of this being a shoot because Hall is asking Nash where he was when his life was falling apart, and so on and so forth. And to further bring home the point that Hall is a pathetic drunk, he takes a sip of his drink, and then he vomits on Eric Bischoff. Nothing you can really say. We're taking a step really out of what you see here in the ring and what you witness in the ring. And we're seeing a man whose life has fallen apart. So as you could tell from the uproarious laughter of the fans after Hall puked on Bischoff, they weren't exactly buying this angle. And just for the record, Hall didn't really vomit on Bischoff. He actually just took a sip of his drink, pretended to puke, and just spit the drink on him. Thankfully, they didn't go the Darren Drozdov route. But nonetheless, the angle is completely tasteless, and I think it somehow ages even worse in retrospect, because many of us have seen that footage from when Hall actually did show up completely shit-faced for a match at that indie show in 2011. And if you haven't seen that footage, uh, don't go look it up, because it's tremendously sad. But now, on to the best part of the show, and for my money, one of the best moments in Monday Nitro history. Allow me to set the stage for you. Five men are in the ring, snazzily dressed in tuxedos. Arn Anderson, J.J. Dillon, Chris Benoit, who? Dean Malenko, and Steve McMichael. At this point, Arn is retired, but he's been on TV several times in the past few weeks, hinting at a potential reformation of WCW's most legendary stable, the Four Horsemen, despite the fact that a certain wrestler who is synonymous with that group has been gone from WCW for the past five months. So Arn begins the segment by complimenting Benoit, Malenko, and Mongo, and telling them why they're all horseman material. And then, from there, well, let's take it to Arn. Ladies and gentlemen, through the year 2000, we're going to do exactly what all of you across this nation have asked. Arn Anderson, bring back the horsemen. But I feel it fair to tell you, I'm not going to be responsible for what happens next. Because we don't wear white hats. We're not nice guys. And I can tell you this, heads are going to roll. So, I said it. Be careful what you wish for, because now you have it. Oh, what a goof. What a goof. You know, I get accused that getting racked in the head a few times and having a little touch of Alzheimer's. My God, I almost forgot the fourth horseman. Ric Flair, go down here. Here we go.
Mike Tanay. Words just do not do this moment justice. That's right, folks. Ric Flair has returned to a WCW ring for the first time since April. Now, before I continue with this segment, some of you may be wondering, well, wait, why exactly has Ric Flair, the wrestler most commonly associated with WCW, been off TV for so long at the very height of the Monday Night Wars? Very fair question. According to Flair, early in 1998, he had asked for time off in April because he wanted to go see his son Reed compete in an amateur wrestling tournament. However, when the time came, Eric Bischoff told Flair that he was needed for the taping of Thunder. Flair said he wouldn't be available for the show because he had requested the time off, but Bischoff, well, he wasn't willing to take no for an answer. In fact, what I'm going to play for you now is a clip from the WWE Network show called The Monday Night Wars, where both men tell their sides of the story, and then at the end you'll also hear clips from Arn Anderson and Chris Jericho talking about a meeting where Bischoff said he would make an example out of Flair. I made plans to take my son to the AU Nationals in Detroit. I'd asked for the time off way in advance. Did the show, Nitro on Monday. Came home, and they called me and told me to be at Thunder in Tallahassee, Florida. I said, not a chance. The problem with that is we didn't hear about, you know, Rick having previously asked for time off until we found out that he wasn't going to make TV. Ladies and gentlemen, I have an apology to make at this time. The nature boy, Rick Flair, is not here at this time. Rick, to this day, will swear up and down that he asked for the time off. And in his mind, he, I'm sure he believes it. But unfortunately, on the other side of that coin, you had a whole office full of people that looked at each other and went, well, did he ask you? No. Did he ask you? Um, he didn't ask me. What the hell did he ask? You come out here and make excuses for Rick Flair? Guess I wanted to shoot some new angle with you know, Thursday night that all of a sudden just came up out of nowhere. And so the compromise was going to be that they were going to send a jet. I'd pay half the price. They'd fly me and my son down to Tallahassee. I'm gonna, like, I'm going to bring him back at 2 in the morning to get up and wrestle. I said, screw you. So <laughs> I didn't go. And that was it. So he sued me for two million bucks. Damages to the show Thunder. And I counter and sued them. And I sat home for six months. The animosity between Eric Bischoff and Ric Flair had reached a boiling point. In a meeting with the entire WCW locker room, Bischoff chose to make an example out of Flair for the unexcused absence. There were some statements made by Eric at a team meeting. He was going to starve Flair and his family out, which is pretty stiff. That's too far. I'm going to make sure that him and his family live in poverty where Flair has to go beg on the streets for food. I'm going to ruin him. I'm going to bury him. This is a meeting that he had with the entire locker room. Eric Bischoff, always a class act. So because of the lawsuit, Flair has been sitting at home for the past five months at a time when it could be argued that WCW needed him the most now that they're battling neck and neck with Raw every week. Unfortunately, according to some reports, Flair had racked up about $75,000 in legal fees to combat the lawsuit, and as a result, he could no longer afford to sit at home, so he made a deal to return to WCW. And that brings us back to Greenville, South Carolina, on Monday, September 14th, 1998. Ric Flair has returned, and I'm going to play his promo for you here in its entirety. It's about four and a half minutes long, so I suppose you could skip ahead if you wanted to, since this is a raw podcast after all, but I think it's worth the time to play it so you can see what the WWF was up against on this night. A couple quick things before I play it for those of you who aren't WCW fans. Number one, at one point, Flair is going to mention the night in Columbia, South Carolina, when Bischoff and Sting had tears in their eyes backstage. That's a reference to Arn Anderson's speech in August of 1997, where he was forced to legitimately retire due to neck and back injuries, and he offered his spot in the Four Horsemen to Kurt Hennig. Number two, Flair mentions that Bischoff tells him to disband the Horsemen, and that happens literally only one month after that emotional retirement speech that Arn gives. So at this point, it's been almost one full calendar year without the Four Horsemen in WCW. And number three, you'll hear the crowd start booing at one point because Eric Bischoff himself does indeed show up in the aisle as Flair is talking, and the Nature Boy then shifts his focus toward the man who filed the real-life lawsuit against him. All right, so with that being said, here is what Ric Flair has to say on the night that he returns to World Championship Wrestling. And oh, in case you're wondering if the Greenville crowd was into this, 
they gave Flair about a three-minute standing ovation before he could even speak as he unsuccessfully tried to fight back tears. So yes, the Carolinas are most definitely Flair country. And now let's pick it up right after that ovation. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm almost embarrassed by the response. But when I see this, I know that the 25 years that I spent trying to make you happy every night of your life was worth every damn minute of it. Now, somebody told me that the horsemen were having a party tonight in Greenville. Could that be true that the most elite group that Eric Bischoff said was dead is alive and well? Bischoff, this might be my only shot. And I got to tell you, I'm going to make it my best. Is this what you call a great moment in TV? It's wrong because this is real. This is not bought and paid for. It's a real life situation. Just like the night in Columbia, South Carolina, when you look at me, tears in my eyes, and said, God, that's good TV. It was real. Art Anderson passed the torch. It was real, damn it. You think Sting was crying in the dressing room like I was on TV if it wasn't real? This guy... My best friend is one of the greatest performers to ever live, and you, you squash him in one night. Then you get on the phone and tell me, disband the horsemen, they're dead. Disband the horsemen. Me, you know what? I looked at myself in the mirror the next day and I saw a pathetic figure that gave up and quit. And for that, I owe you, the wrestling fans, I owe these guys an apology because it won't happen again where we are. That's right. You're an obnoxious, you're an obnoxious, overbearing ass. Abuse of power. You. Abuse of power. Cut me off. Come on. You will it's never, ever abuse of power. You suck. You, I hate your guts. You're a scam. You are a no good son of a bitch. Fire me. I'm already fired. Fire me. I'm already fired. And with that, they abruptly cut to a commercial. Still gives me goosebumps, I have to say. I know there's been speculation over the years as to whether or not Bischoff's interruption was planned or a shoot. For the record, it was, of course, planned, but I'll read a quick excerpt from Flair's autobiography to be the man so he can provide some context. I knew that he was going to come out and interrupt me at some point, and he knew that I was going to fire back at him. Beyond that, everything else was ad-libbed. 
Bischoff came out of the dressing room, flapping his arms around like he was legitimately trying to end the segment. Just the sight of him pissed me off, so I let the words keep flowing. I ad-libbed what I was saying to Eric Bischoff on WCW Monday Nitro, but the feelings were all too real. The fans were jumping up and down, pointing and cursing at Bischoff, screaming like they were no longer watching sports entertainment, but something that had previously been confined to the dressing room. And they were right. It was all out in the open, and it was real. Absolutely, 100% real. So there you have it, an incredibly intense promo, which originated from the real-life hatred between two men who must now work together with each other every single week. Surely WCW can't possibly screw up this feud from here, right? Right? Yeah. A couple more lighthearted notes about this promo before wrapping up. One thing you couldn't tell from listening to it is that Flair's mouth is actually bleeding by the time he finishes talking, so leave it to the Nature Boy to somehow get color during a promo. The man's a pro. Also, the segment where Scott Hall vomited on Bischoff was literally the segment before this one, so it's pretty amusing to know that Bischoff was involved in back-to-back moments, which were both some of the best and some of the worst in WCW history. And finally, in case you're wondering what was airing on Raw during Flair's speech, it was the Sable-Jacqueline evening gown match. Even though the WWF delivered on its promise of women tearing each other's clothes off, that quarter hour was dominated by Nitro as Flair's promo scored a 5.4 rating to the evening gown match's 3.8. Thankfully, for one night anyway, good taste prevailed. And so, after all that, let's finish it up with the Raw synopsis. So clearly Raw was up against some stiff competition on this night, and they did once again lose in the ratings, but for my money, this was a legitimate pay-per-view quality episode of Raw. If this had aired as one of those old two-hour in-your-house shows and I had paid $19.95 for it, I still would have felt like I had gotten my money's worth. In my opinion, this was one of the two best Raws during our timeline so far, right up there with the post-WrestleMania 14 episode. And in case you doubt my claim that this was a pay-per-view worthy event, I will repeat some of the matches on this card for you. Steve Austin vs. Ken Shamrock in one of only two televised matches they will ever have. The Undertaker vs. Mankind. The Rock vs. Kane. Triple H vs. Owen Hart. And shit, I'll even toss Edge vs. Gangrel in there since that feud has been built up for a month now, and I'll give an honorable mention to Sable vs. Jackie, since it's the Attitude Era, and you have to appease the fans with some TNA, too. That's a fucking pay-per-view show on free TV, my friends. Not to mention the fact we also got a new Val Venus video, as well as a hilariously goofy Steven Regal vignette. That's money, my friends. In fact, I'm willing to bet that this show will be more entertaining than the actual pay-per-view breakdown in a few weeks, but I'll dive into that when the time comes. And one thing that was noticeable from the opening segment was that the Austin-Vince rivalry has officially been kicked back into high gear. Austin and The Undertaker had been feuding all summer, and Vince had occasionally interjected and made his presence felt, but for the most part, Mr. McMahon was not a huge focus when Stone Cold and Taker were on the highway to hell. As of tonight, however, it becomes quite clear that they're officially reigniting the Austin-McMahon feud in full force, and I certainly have no complaints about that. So overall, an absolutely huge thumbs up for this episode of Raw. Definitely go watch it if you get a chance, because top to bottom, it may be one of the best episodes of Raw ever. Yes, you're goddamn right I'm saying it. Ever. It was such a great show that I'm even willing to overlook the fact that there were two no contests and a double countout. As soon as this podcast finishes, go watch this episode of Raw as soon as you can. You'll thank me later. And on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us one of those ever-important five-star reviews on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so, as promised earlier on this podcast, I'm going to play The Undertaker's new, badass, guitar-heavy theme song for you, because it's my all-time favorite theme of his, and it always reminds me of the fall of 1998, when wrestling was, you know, good. So enjoy that, and I will catch you next time.